0: And now, Lord, I have the privilege of opening up your word. And it's an ancient passage filled with pictures that are, in some cases, foreign to our day and time. So help us hear the idea in the passage that we may do what it says and be benefited, be blessed by the life and the joy that it promises. Thank you, Lord, for the patience of this congregation and its generosity and their continued kindness, Lord, within the family and outside of it. Thank you that in these tough days, I've seen more love, more courage, more service than at any other time since I've known this church. I thank you. You're the author of that. You've done that. But they've been careful to obey you even in these strange days. So thank you for all of this, and let me teach as I should change us by the hearing of Your Word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are you tired of all this yet? I don't mean this. Are you tired of the pandemic yet? Yeah, me too. Me too. I don't know what your world is like, but I have a lot of friends in in higher education and universities and the word that keeps coming up that they've been texting me memes and gifts and funny stories about is the word pivot. Are your offices, your organizations using the word pivot a lot or is that just educators being geeky? What pivot means is change everything in a moment. Just turn on a dime and change everything. We've changed and we've pivoted as a church. I never, in my wildest days, at any point during college and seminary, studies after seminary, never did I imagine setting up a tent beside a multi-million dollar building so that we could have church together. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Some of you have brought your children to sit with you under the tent. Awesome, fantastic, good job. Won't bother me a bit, okay? Uh, we're delighted to have families here. We're proud of you that some of you have taken on more responsibility, you've been more purposeful and more intentional in teaching your children yourself at home, praise God, keep it up. We're going to bring children's ministry back at the end of the month. If you don't have my churchwide email, uh, please go to the website and subscribe or send us an email and ask us, please, to add you to the list. We need to keep you updated because you may have noticed things keep changing and we all have to keep pivoting. And it's wearisome things that you could count on are now rather uncertain. I mean, I'm, I wasn't joking. I practiced taking communion before church because I wasn't sure in my awkwardness that I'd be able to open the cup, and I was half afraid of throwing it halfway across the platform here. And that would not have been a good moment. And I'm telling you all this because if you grow weary now, and you give up on the truths that you've known, those of you who are believers, the truths that you have known all your lives, if you quit now, it will all be wasted. That's the brutal thing about this life. Your final chapter sometimes is all that people can remember. You can write a final chapter that can wipe out your narrative previously up to that point. I had that experience this week, as I'm going to share with you later in the sermon, where people I know and love and admired gave up, were caught in grievous sin, had double, a whole double secret life exposed, and in a moment their families were ruined, the people they had influenced, all their lives were shattered and confused because they couldn't imagine that it could all be true. That's why perseverance matters so much. That's why the book of Hebrews is in the Bible. It's there, I'd like you to turn, please. Hebrews chapter 12. If you'll look with me, please, in Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews has that strange name because it was written to Jewish Christians. Just one of the strange things that you have to do in a pandemic, which is move an umbrella before you start preaching. That, that, was, that was always part of vacation, never part of church. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians perhaps in the second century. These were Christians who had started to pay a price for their faith in Christ. The synagogue, the priesthood, everything that Judaism had meant, everything that the faith of Israel had meant was still very much a part of their lives. But they had heard the good news that all the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament had actually been fulfilled in one unlikely man, that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem and raised of Nazareth, was actually the very Messiah that prophets like Isaiah and David had spoken of in the book of Isaiah and in the Psalms. As you read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you can see with how much joy that was all received. The apostles, the first witnesses to Jesus' life, were going into Jewish places like the synagogue and in the temple courts and opening up the Hebrew Scriptures, letting people examine it for themselves and showing line by line, it's all true, it really is Him. Because this faith of ours, when we say that we're Christians, what we mean is we have a personal trust placed in Jesus Christ, but it's not a blind and unreasoning faith, it's a proven faith. It's a person that offers proof of his reality, of his ability to keep his promises, who offers proof of his actual identity. And for a time, you can read it in the book of Acts, the gospel exploded beginning in Jerusalem across the Roman Empire so that some people believe that as many as half of people in Jerusalem were Christians by the time the apostles were driven out by persecution. But because persecution had started, because families were torn apart, because jobs were lost, because weddings were canceled, because friendships dissolved, because invitations to dinner stopped coming, as families were divided regarding whether this was actually the one who was promised or not, people started paying a price for their faith. And the book of Hebrews is a long argument. It's actually a sermon in 13 chapters. If you think I preach long, you can read the book of Hebrews later today in its entirety and be grateful that I don't dare preach for 13 chapters worth. Of course, I'm not preaching with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It would be fine if this preacher were preaching the book of Hebrews to you. I'm just explaining a little portion and the, por- the purpose of the sermon is simply to prove this. Jesus is superior to everything you were told in the Old Testament law. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law itself. He is the best and last high priest, and he is the priest who brings himself as a sacrifice. All other priests brought a sacrifice with them. Needed forgiveness for their own sins, Jesus does not. He offers the sacrifice of His righteous life on the cross to save any and all who would turn away from their sin and believe Him. That's what we just celebrated in communion. In the book of Hebrews, if you've read it, and if you haven't, I really do invite you to read through it this week, is a long-continued argument that Jesus is simply better He's better than all of his competitors. He is better than all the prophets. He is better than all the promises because he keeps all the promises and it's woven through with warnings. If you give up on Jesus, you're done. If you give up on Jesus, there will be no more more hope for you because he really is the last one. He is the one that God sent and no one else is coming. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 12. And as the sermon concludes in Hebrews, you're now going to hear a call to endure, to persevere, to not give up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with, what's the word? Endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is the danger. That in your long life, if God grants you a long life, discouragement from others, sin in your own life, persecution from this world would cause you to grow weary or faint-hearted and stop running after Jesus, stop running the race that he has set before you. So if like me you have grown weary at a time in your life, and this has been a wearisome week for reasons I'll explain to you. And please let me tell you, I'm not complaining, I'm just telling you. Contrary to how what some pastors perhaps try to portray, I feel it too. No complaint here. I have the most amazing life imaginable. I'm grateful. Every single day I get to be part of this church family. I'm amazed every time I try my key in the door and the door still works. The deacons have not yet changed the locks, and that is absolutely great news every time I come to the office. So I'm not telling you by way of complaint or lament, not at all. I'm telling you on the contrary, I'm grateful and excited to be part of this family. I can't wait to see the future that we're writing even now. And though all that is true, I get tired. I grow weary. I can get faint hearted. That's why the book of Hebrews has drawn my attention, because this little passage tells us of two things that God has given us so that we can endure and win this race. The first is this: if you're keeping notes, we have, the author of Hebrews tells us, this anonymous author, whose name is unknown but whose preaching is so clear, we're told, first of all, we have amazing examples of faithful endurance ahead of us. We can look back at people who have followed after God and we can be reminded and encouraged by their example. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is about. Hebrews chapter 11 has kind of a nickname that Bible students have given it for years. You know, the editors of your Bible may have placed it over chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. What is that normally called? I know it's supposed to be a monologue in preaching, but come on, we're outdoors in a tent. Let's, uh, we, can be a little less, uh, we can be a little less formal. The Hall of Fame of the Faith. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with some of the first people God made, continuing through men like Abraham and Moses, you are told what ordinary people who heard a promise from God were able to do and how they finished well. At the end of the chapter, a tremendous number of anonymous people who suffered dearly for their faith in God are mentioned without even their names, only their exploits, only their deeds. And the point of Hebrews 11 is to remind you of how many people finished well and to tell you what to do with their example. Look again in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, that word also is very important, In other words, we have a cloud of witnesses. We have a great number of witnesses ahead of us. We must do what they did. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's take this famous verse one phrase at a time. This great cloud of witnesses, what does that mean? What's a cloud of witnesses look like anyway? When I was a kid, when this verse was explained to me by Bible teachers, they said, you can imagine yourself as a runner in the Christian race that God has set before you. God has put a race ahead of you. He has a purpose for your life. You're running ahead in the race that He has set for you, and you can imagine that these witnesses have already finished their race. They've gone up into the bleachers of a great stadium of heaven and they're watching you run and cheering you on. Did anybody else ever hear that explanation? No. Okay, 3 of you did. Thank you for your cooperation, folks. <laughs> that may be true. The way this Greek language is the way the Greek language is written is used here in Hebrews chapter 11, that may be part of his meaning. That you have people looking down on you, watching you run, and encouraging you and cheering you on. I'm not entirely sure about that because it's not clear for me what those in glory are allowed to see on earth. What I'm quite sure about is this. These are witnesses perhaps of our own race, but what is absolutely certain is these are people who suffered more than we have ever imagined who have finished their race and their witness to us is this. You can finish too. You can endure. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can run with patience. Yes, you can achieve God's purpose. No, you don't have to give up. You have to keep running as I did. And we're told specifically, since we have these witnesses ahead of us, serving as examples for us, and perhaps looking down on us, we are to do two things. Let's study the Bible together. If you'll look in verse 1, I printed it there in your bulletin. You can underline if you like. Look in verse 1. What is the commandment? There's an imperative for those of you who like grammar. In other words, in this sentence... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What's the first instruction? What's the first commandment? What's the first imperative in that sentence? Let us also lay aside. If you're going to run a long race, there are things that you have to lay aside. And there's two things of two different categories. Let us also, in other words, as they did, let us lay aside every weight, that's one thing, and sin, which clings so closely. That's the second thing. And having done that, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What are we being told here? We have amazing examples of faithful endurance. So the preacher in Hebrews says, run light, Christian." Don't weigh yourself down. Lay aside every weight and lay aside also sin which clings so closely. What's the point of all this? Please hear this. Every Christian can finish well, but not every Christian does. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if Jesus is your Savior, you can finish well. If you had health and life enough to come to this parking lot, To watch a man preach in the sun and awkwardly work his way through communion and control blowing papers and all of the distractions that you've put up with. If you weren't able to come, but you're capable enough to watch online, if you're still drawing breath and you have trusted Christ, that means that you still have life, you still have purpose, and you can finish well because every Christian can. God has given you examples, historic testimonies of people enduring more than you have already who finished well to tell you that you can too, but not everybody does. This week has been burdensome because on three different occasions, some local and some national, Christians I love and one in particular that I came to respect and to think of as a mentor, whether he ever thought he was that much of an influence in my life. I heard three different stories of Christians not finishing well this week, one of whom ruined his whole life. And now it's sent waves through that part of the country where his sin and his double life was exposed every single Christian can finish well. You can finish well. No matter what has happened to this point, you can cling to Christ. You can keep running with endurance. You can keep looking to Jesus. You can finish well, but you might not. And every single one of you who is still in this race, in this life, should consider with humility that your race isn't over and that you could stagger and stumble and bring disrepute to Christ and bring discouragement to others before you're done. And the plea is to not do that, to lay aside every weight. What is that? Those are things that are not sinful but will keep you from finishing well. Uh, recently, I met an ultra runner. Do you know what an ultra runner is? An ultra runner is a person who decides to run some, a distance that is longer than a marathon, if you can imagine that. When I hear that people run marathons, I often wonder, do they know they don't have to? (laughs) There's absolutely no obligation. It's a free country. You're free to use your time any way you wish. And yet, some people choose to run for hours. Some people choose to run all night. And in just making a brief, friendly acquaintance with this ultra runner, but watching what this person did online to train, I was amazed to discover not only do they run dozens of miles, they run often with a weight vest. They have this high-tech little weight vest that they strap on that looks almost like a thick shirt. It's so well-made and fits so tightly. I thought, as if it wasn't bad enough to run 25 or 30 miles to put weight on your shoulders beside. Why do they do that? The point is really simple. If you're continually running with extra weight on your body on race day, you take that off and you feel like you have wings. Here's the point, folks. The life you have from Christ right now, this isn't training. This is it. This is your time to run. This is the time to get rid of the things that are distracting to you that may not necessarily be evil, that may not be sinful, but may be enormously distracting to you and keeping you from God's purpose. I brought an example with me to help you understand what I'm talking about. I didn't mean to, but I started using my phone today to keep my pages down. You've seen the dance of the pages up here. Since I've been up here, since we started the morning services, I've received eight notifications. I forgot in the first service to turn the notifications off. So as I'm preaching and trying with all of these distractions, because you got people drag racing on Warner and the police helicopter flying over and a recreational pilot over here, um, over here to the south, uh, having a good time, my phone kept vibrating and vibrating and vibrating and making the point for me. In the middle of all this, I have all these distractions. Have you found at any point that this has been a distraction and a discouragement to your life? That's just one thing. I'm not picking on smartphones, as you can see. I have one. In fact, people have been trying to reach me throughout the morning. It's not sinful. You may not use it for an evil purpose. But it's one of a thousand things in 21st century life that may so absorb your attention, may so consume your time and distract your energy that you don't have time, energy, and vision left for what Jesus actually wants. The sin which so easily entangles us the sin which clings so closely, that is something you must definitely get rid of. That is, a sin is something that's going to derail or destroy God's purpose for your life. And sins come in all kinds of things. They're all tempted by different things, but the flesh and the devil don't care how you get derailed or how you get distracted, how God's purpose is destroyed so long as it is. The heartbreaking thing this week was to be reminded that sin, flesh, and the devil, and we ourselves, when we get apart from God, we literally have our whole lives to ruin our testimony. Years ago, a long number of years ago, a very famous award-winning war movie was made called Saving Private Ryan. It depicts fictitious events in the awful reality of D-Day. You meet a small group of soldiers on D-Day as they arrive on the beach. And if you haven't seen it and you're easily troubled by violence, don't bother. Because for about 15 minutes, one of the most graphic depictions of modern warfare are put on the screen. After wave, after wave, after wave of American fighters show up on the beach, many of them die on the troop carriers that were, that were bringing them. Many of them died on the water. Many of them died on the sand. Only a few actually made it past the beachhead and actually engaged the mission with which they were tasked. Why am I telling you this? Because the first time I saw this movie, and that's been a long time ago, but I'd been in ministry long enough and having been raised in a missionary's family, it reminded me of a spiritual picture because the Bible says that this life we're in is not only a race, we're also told that this life is war. And if you can be destroyed, if, ru- if your testimony can be ruined, if you can be distracted and derailed from following Christ before you even get started, that's a great victory for the enemy. Young people, some of you aren't even considering giving your whole life to Christ. You haven't really considered His claims and His glory on you. Please consider, Christ, consider that the best thing you can do with the short life He gives you here on earth is to serve Him with your whole heart. But if He distracts you and persuades you and seduces you into anything other than God's purpose for you, you're lost to the cause before you even get started. If, on the other hand, like this older pastor I'm telling you about, If you can be brought down after more than 50 years of faithful ministry, that will send fear and confusion down through the ranks. And all the people who are younger than you, who look to you for an example, might be distracted and might be delayed from following Christ yourself. So please run carefully See yourself in this long line of faithful Christians and set aside anything that will keep you from Christ. Now look in verse 2. Here's the second thing that the Lord has provided. We run, the sermon says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. See, I took this week a little harder than I should have when I got these three individual stories of Christians failing and foundering in their faith. Because for a couple of days, I really fastened my eyes on them and their circumstances, and I forgot to look at Jesus. Terrible mistake. I know better. I stressed myself and my family out unnecessarily by forgetting, ironically, the very thing I was preparing to preach for you. Simply put, if you focus your attention as your ultimate example on any other person on earth, you're chronically at risk of being disappointed and disillusioned. As God is my witness, and this week has been helpful in that regard, because you're part of my spiritual family, because you've given me the blessing of being your pastor, I promise you, for the love of God and the love of the faith, never to disappoint you in the way that this week I've been disappointed. But... If I do, because this elderly pastor, I'm sure, did not mean to discourage so many of us the way he inevitably did. If I do, remember, it's never been about me. It's always been about Jesus. I'm just a messenger. If I ever fail you and disappoint you in a disqualifying, demoralizing, sin exalting, faith-destroying kind of way. Remember that the whole point of the message, the whole point of God's Word to us is to exalt Christ, not preachers. We have examples, but the examples aren't the point. The examples are only trophies of how God can take ordinary people and bring them through great difficulty because they had their eyes fastened on Jesus, who is, it says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means that we, number two, we have Jesus. So as you run, keep looking to Him. Be encouraged by examples where you can find them. See yourself in those examples. Say to yourself, if those ordinary people could serve God in great distress and in terrible difficulty, so can I, but please keep looking at Him. The New American Standard Translation has the best translation I've found of this phrase. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. When you're running, if you intend to win, you don't look at the stands, You don't look beside you to see how anybody else is doing. If you intend to finish well and to keep strong, you keep your vision up and you keep your eyes ahead on Jesus. When it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, what it means is that Jesus did all the work. What I'm presenting to you is good news, not good advice. I am announcing to you the good news that Jesus died for sinners like you and sinners like me, and He through His death and resurrection offers now salvation. It goes on to say, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was on the cross, we're told what was on His mind. This is an amazing verse. Check this out. We are to run, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Bible question for you. Whether you're following along at home on your TV or your laptop or you're here in the parking lot, I have a Bible study question for you. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? In other words... The preacher in Hebrews is giving you a powerful reminder. As Jesus died on a Roman cross, a death he didn't deserve, as Jesus died for you, as Jesus died for me, he was enduring that shame because a first century Roman crucifixion was designed not only to be excruciating but to be shameful. And if you read the crucifixion of Jesus, you can see that dynamic at work. People are coming by, strangers are coming by to insult and curse Jesus as he dies in front of them. That was part of the power of the cross. It wasn't only the, of the crucifixion, it wasn't only the physical torture, it was the absolute social shame of being stripped naked, beaten publicly, and then crucified left on a cross-shaped piece of wood so that other people could watch you die in broad daylight. And Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 12, is going through all that, and he despises that shame. In other words, it means nothing to him. He looks beyond it. He looks past it to the joy that was set before him. And my Bible study question is, what do you think that joy was? Who said it? Okay, somebody way out there in the park in the playground, who I can't even see, said the right thing. The joy that was set ahead of Jesus, the reason he died, despising the shame of his own crucifixion, is you. He knew that as excruciating and undeserved as his death was, the hymn was right. Death could not hold him that his suffering was only for a time, and that after the triumph of his resurrection, in which Jesus vindicated and proved that everything the Bible said about him was absolutely true, after that came the joy of gathering up the family of God from tribes and tongues and nations all over the world from every religious system and non-religious system ever known to mankind. So, what we're being told here is that we have Jesus, we need to keep our eyes on Him because Jesus endured earthly suffering to have eternal, the eternal joy of saving people and it goes on to say He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God where the same book of Hebrews tells you He's interceding for you right now. So, words fail me. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. He has gone ahead of you to be tempted in every way, just as you are, but without sin, to lay his righteous life down, to take your wickedness upon him and trade places with you so that you have the righteousness and the holiness and the goodness of God on your account instead of your own misdeeds, instead of your own sins. He then went back to heaven through his resurrection to prove that it was all true. And at this very moment, he's speaking to the Father on your behalf. He's interceding for you right now. If I have all that, how dare I be discouraged for more than a moment? I can't help but be discouraged. You can't either. But when you're discouraged by the sin and the failure and the hypocrisy of other people... In that same moment, please reset and remember that on their best day, all they were were the same thing you are, someone who was following Jesus, and they stumbled and fell along the way. But their Savior still has grace and faithfulness enough to pick them back up, to get them back in the race. And what you need to do is to keep your eyes focused on Him so that you can keep running. And then that brings us to verse 3 in the end. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, as you're running this life that God has set out ahead of you, when you're discouraged, when you're frightened, think of Jesus who endured from sinners tremendous hostility. Remind yourself what happened to him so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me be as practical as I can be and I'll be done. The pandemic has exposed a lot of things in us as individuals, as families, as a congregation. I'll always be for the rest of my life if I get hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow, and only have a few hours left to think of what my life has meant, I will always and forever be impressed and grateful for the way this family of faith has kept its eyes on Jesus and stayed on course, stayed on mission, stayed on the the path together. It's been the most amazing thing in my life. But if you've looked across the rest of America, you may have noticed that some Christians haven't always behaved very Christianly. Has anybody noticed that? We've seen some terribly unchristian behavior in the name of Christ recently. And I think it's because as Christians, we're unaccustomed to suffering. For many of us, for the first time in our lives, our lives through a choice that was not our own, whether it's schools or authorities or the reality of the pandemic, life just got really uncomfortable. And some Christians have spent a great amount of time crying about it and complaining about it, saying that it's not fair and that they're being persecuted. That's why verse 3 and verse 4 are so important. As you run this race, if it really gets hard, here's what you do. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Then it says in verse 4, which I've printed there on your outline, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's that mean? Garner paraphrase. You're going through a rough time, but they haven't killed you yet that seem a little severe? Are you aware that in the 20th century, more Christian blood was spilled in persecution than in all the previous centuries put together? That's true. You can look it up. The faith of Christianity, beginning with the crucifixion of Jesus, is that Christians hang on to Jesus because he's real and because he's true, and because he keeps his promises. What has happened in America from our founding to this point is an absolute historical anomaly. We are the first nation and the first group of Christians anywhere who have, in, who have enjoyed such long-term protection, freedom, and prosperity in our faith. Now, because of the pandemic and the upheaval to our families and our economy and our educational system and everything in our lives got a lot harder and I'm not minimizing it. What I am saying is this, this is the time to hold on to Jesus, not the time to complain that we have it hard. This is not the time to say nobody's ever had it as bad as we have it. We are going through so many terrible things. No, no. We're getting a taste of what our brothers and sisters overseas and around the world and candidly just across the border in Mexico in certain regions like Oaxaca have endured their whole lives. Don't give up. Get some perspective. The truth is that unrealistic expectations can be more devastating than the actual trials we're going through. What we need is what's happening here in verse 4. The preacher is getting his arms around these discouraged people and saying, listen, I know you've got it tough, but they haven't killed you, have they? Does that sound like a good pep talk to you? Reminds me of a football coach I had in Mexico. Someday, from the safety of retirement, I will write a fun little book about what it was like to play American football in the late 80s in the country of Mexico when many of the referees themselves had apparently never played the game. It was chaotic. The only thing that kept me going is I really had one great coach who had played at a high level, Who, in fact had played in the United States, where football, of course, is king. And one of the tricky things about playing football in Mexico is, especially back in those days, there was no film and they weren't too good about keeping records. And what that meant was that 16-, 17-, 18-year-old Bruce Garner sometimes played against men in their 20s who had played high school football for nine years some of whom had children of their own. I'm not kidding. I was the center on our football team, so it was often a part of my experience to squat down over the ball, look across the line for the first time, and see a grown man with a full beard and a little silver in the beard looking back at me, promising to hurt me. So depending on how good the other guy was, sometimes I'd go to the sidelines covered with a little bit of blood with some of my own tears mixed in and complain to my good coach. And he would always give me some version, quick, in Spanish, sometimes laced with words that nobody should say to a child that age. You're fine. You're going to do great. Get back in there. And because he believed that I could do it, I always returned to the field to at least try. That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. What's my point? Friends, we haven't even tried that hard yet. So let's keep considering Jesus. I'm praying and hoping and have evidence to believe, as you do, that this may soon be over. But if it's not, you know what you're going to need to do you're going to need to keep your eyes on Jesus. If you take nothing else from this sermon, please hear that. If you get so distracted by politics, if you get so distracted by the news across your phone, if you get so distracted by the drama at your job, if you get so distracted by the difficulty of educating your children, If you get so distracted and discouraged by the extra tension that this has brought into your family and your friendships that you take your eyes off Jesus, all is lost. To endure what we need to do is lay aside every weight and every sin and keep running with our eyes on Jesus. Can we do that this week, please? How will you do that? You'll pick up your Bible tomorrow. I'm going to send you some verses to help you do it this afternoon if you get my email. You're going to meet with your God in the morning. You're going to commend yourself to Him and ask for His blessings on your day, and then you're going to run out, having done your best to set aside the distractions and the sins that will entangle you and bring you down. If not tomorrow, then someday, and you will run with your eyes on Him. When you get distracted and discouraged, you'll take a little time to cry and count your losses, and then you'll set your eyes back on him, and you'll keep running because what God wants every person in his family to do is to finish and finish well, and you can do it. You have great examples, and more than that, you have a great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have come to hear from you. I pray that they would have. Thank you, Lord, for those who have brought babies and children. Thank you that they've endured, seems like such a strong word, Lord, but they've been patient with distractions and these strange accommodations. It's the best we can do now. But I pray that in all of this, we would all hear from you and we would refocus our attention on you. The news, social media, every other voice screams so loudly to us to keep our focus off of you. Help us focus our eyes on you and run faithfully and well. We ask in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen.